Good morning, CBC. I'm Robert Warner, one of the elders here. I call myself a baby elder, one of the newer ones. And I, I am happy to be able to, to speak to you this morning as we continue our conversation, um, kind of addressing the things that we're seeing in our nation uh, in regards to race relations. And uh, as, we, as we strive for unity, as we strive to uh, respond in the way that God would have us respond, um, we want to continue that conversation. It's going to be a little bit different this morning. Uh, we're going to try to cover this uh, a little bit by looking at a text in Psalm 133 this morning. But we're also going to talk, have Bob's going to come up and he's going to do a little bit of a, a testimony, as well as we're going to let you see or eavesdrop into a conversation that we had earlier this week. Uh, but before we go into the Word and we get started, let's go ahead and... Um, Commit this to, to the Lord this morning. Then, Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for being a God who is who is present, who is near, uh, who is aware of our situation, who loves us and has a purpose and plan in all this, Lord. And we want to be your people in this, Lord. Uh, we want to be used of you. Uh, we want to grow in the areas that you would have us to grow, Lord. And um, we're not able to do that ourselves, Lord. So we need your Holy Spirit's guidance. In uh, leadership here, Lord, we ask that we would um, we would be able to to grow and to step into uh, uh, this issue of, of unity and the importance of it, Lord. Lord, we ask that you go before me this morning, and we commit all things to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. And the book. Woke Church by Eric Mason. Uh, he's a man I actually went to seminary with. Um, he compares race relationships in the United States and the tensions that there are, that, that, that are there. Uh, he compares them with an eruption of a volcano. I just want to read that description uh, and kind of go from there. He says, the Kilauea, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, volcano in Hawaii erupted on May 17th. Uh, 2018 at 4:17, spewing lava more than a thousand feet in the air. Homes and other structures in the wake of the lava flow and the eruptions-related ongoing event were destroyed. But geologists say that the volcano has been erupting almost continuously since 1983. One eruption is followed by a period of calm maybe another year or so of quiet that allows people to relax and to forget, and then another eruption. Because volcanoes are formed when tectonic plates shift over hot spots in the layer of the earth beneath the surface. And we never know exactly when or where they will erupt. More than two years after that event on May 17th in 2018, there was another eruption of a different kind of sort that, that spewed rage throughout our nation. That is the murder of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer. Now, many of us surveyed the damages on social media, through the news, um, Maybe we witnessed it through other people telling us about it. Uh, we're left to wrestle with our thoughts and our, and our feelings and our actions. After a week of protest, we are left to wonder what just happened. How are we supposed to respond to something like this? Where do we go from here? I got a text message from Lenny Carell earlier this week and he basically was checking in with me uh, as it relates to what is going on in the nation. And I, I want to share with you the essence of, of my response to him. I said, I'm sorting through a lot in my head. And this is what I appreciate. I had so many people reach out to me who just wanted to listen. Many of those were members from CBC. I've had white people on the path that, I, that runs right by my house intentionally look me in the eye and say hello. 
My neighbor Rick, who is white, he has a sign out front that is that is telling about the support that he has for Black lives. I'm learning so much about race relations. I'm spending a lot of time studying on that. I didn't get that uh, in school and I'm loving it. There are a lot of shared experiences and various experiences that, I, that I'm seeing that people have. And sometimes I feel the pressure to respond emotionally from the pressure of others and expectations of others. And I'm still kind of wrestling with um, what resonates with me and how I'm supposed to see this. I've had long conversations with my parents, with my sister, with my wife, with my kids. I've had a great conversation with my son of what it means to be an African-American male in the United States who is a believer. I've enjoyed meditating on Romans 9, I mean, Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. I believe Paul does an excellent job speaking to both sides of the table. And all this I've, I've concluded and I've come back to the question of what does God always require of me? So this, this, this morning, we're gonna look at a Psalm, uh, Psalm 133, as a song of ascent by David. And it says, look, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to live together. Some translations said brothers to live together in unity. It is like fine oil poured on the head, which flows down the beard, Aaron's beard, and then flows down his garment. I think it's important that we take note of what kind of, of, of Psalm this is. Uh, it says it's a Psalm of, of, of ascent. And so the, the next question you might have is, what is the Psalm of Ascent? Basically, it's 15 uh, uh, Psalms from Psalm 120 to 134, I believe. And these Psalms are often called songs for going up to worship or pilgrim songs. And so I think it's important for us to note that because I think it helps us visualize what David is trying to, to show us, to bring, bring to mind. And this is what I see when I think about that. I see David standing on the roof of his palace during a time of year where Jerusalem is preparing for one of its great festivals like the Passover. Because of the elevated height of David's uh, palace, he's able, he has a unique vantage point to see what he saw. And what he sees causes his heart to just erupt in praise and worship. He looks out into, into the horizon and, and what he sees is, is lines of, of people from all over the nation of, of um, Israel coming to Jerusalem, ascending on Jerusalem. Many of them traveling from long distances away. They might have an, an arduous and long journey. Some of them traveling through maybe uh, some treacherous territories and rough terrain. While others might have had a shorter or easier journey. But all in all, one thing unifies them. And they all come together for one purpose. And that purpose is to worship God. When you read the psalm, it says, look how good and how pleasant brothers living together in unity. He starts out by using those two words, good and pleasant. He starts out with, with good using the same word that God used when he created the earth, David pronounces that what he's seeing is a good thing. But it's as if that word good is not good enough. He has to add on it, it's pleasant, it's pleasing. It's pleasing to his heart and causes his heart to erupt into worship. It is both good and it's pleasant 
to his heart. Perhaps David understood how unpleasant it was for family members to be divided and not be unified. So he pronounces it good and pleasant for brothers to live together in unity. Now, he could have easily said it's good for people to live together in unity, but he uses the word there and he calls it brother. And I think it's bringing out the point that this is a family thing. They're coming together for the purpose of praise and that propels his heart into worship as brothers and sisters, as a family thing. Now, here's the challenge that we, that we all face during this time as God's representatives on earth during this moment. We all come with various experiences and ethnicities perspectives and personalities. All of that informs the way that we live our life and the way that we, we think. And like Israel, as it were, we all come from various parts of, of a nation, from various walks uh, of life. And David describes what it's like for brothers to walk together in unity by using two metaphors. We're only gonna look at that first metaphor here tonight or today. So my first point after looking at this metaphor uh, and, and verse two says, it is like a fine oil poured out on the head, which flows down to the beard, Aaron's beard, and then flows down on his garment. First thing that, that comes to mind is that unity is a sacred thing. He says, oil pours on the head. When you when you place when do you place oil on, on somebody's head? When 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 do you see that in, in scripture? Oil being placed onto somebody's head. Normally you would see that as a king is being anointed to rule a nation, or a priest is being being anointed to be God's representative in the temple. When somebody is anointed, they're set apart for a, a, a special purpose. That special purpose is unique and different and distinct. And we need to remember that unity is a sacred calling. And God has called us to be unified. But notice that the oil flows down from the head to the beard to the garment. This calling is a sacred calling that finds its origin in God himself. You see, back in, in John 17, we read about a prayer that, that God made, that Jesus made the day before he died. And you need to pay attention to somebody the day before, the things that they say before they die, because they're meaningful. And so Jesus is, is praying and he's praying for future believers, uh, the future church. And that in itself is an incredible thing that God, that Jesus spent time the day before he is to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world, praying for the future church, praying for the, super, uh, the future disciples. And what does he pray for? Out of all the things in the world that he can pray for, what does he pray for? Well, in John 17, verses 20 and 21, it says he prays that they can be one. As you are in me and I am in you, I pray that they also will be one in us. Then the world will believe that you have sent me. Notice what is at stake there in that last part of that verse. There's a watching world's belief that is at stake. He prays that the that we will be one, like like the, the the Godhead is one, so that the world may believe that Jesus is real and sent from the Father. Unity is worth fighting for, brothers and sisters. 
Unity is sacred, but it's also can get very sticky. In other words, it's messy. Notice what he says. It's like it flows down from the head to the beard to the garment. Imagine the amount of oil that somebody needs to apply on the head that will flow all the way down from the head through the beard all the way down to the garment. Imagine how messy that is. That's just a, a, a messy, messy picture. You know, Adrian and I were talking about that. We're trying to visualize well, what, what does that look like? And the first thing to visualize is the picture, this is that picture from the 80s. Uh, I imagine that may, not many of you had jerry curls. Maybe some of y'all did. I know my mom and my sister did. I know that my, my wife's dad had uh, a jerry curl. And those of you who have experienced a jerry curl know that it's simply just messy. Um, and that the, the oils that are applied on the head often find themselves on the forehead, on the lips, on your collar. There's actually a, a couch cover that was created with the jerry curl in mind to protect couches. It was just a messy affair. People trying to be unified can be a messy affair. It's not easy for us to remain unified. It is something that we need to be intentional about. It's something that we need to fight for. It's something that we need to be committed to forgiveness. We need to remember that we need to seek to be people who try to understand each other. We must be determined to see things not from our own experiences, not from our own best thoughts, but see things from God's eyes. Unity, although messy, is worth fighting for. And thirdly, unity is a fragrant affair. Oil has an aroma. The, the, the nature of oil is not really meant just to, to, to lie on the skin. The nature of oil, it, it absorbs into the body, into the skin and into the body, and that smell lingers. It makes me think about the times where maybe you're on an elevator and you're looking at your phone and somebody comes in with some, some cologne, some, some good smelling cologne or perfume, and you, because of the smell, you're, 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 you take notice. You look up from your phone. You want to know where that smell is coming from. And you might ask that person, hey, where'd, where'd you get that cologne? What is that cologne? Can you give me that name? And maybe you leave that elevator and you go back to your office or you go to wherever you're going and a half an hour later, and what do you notice? You start smelling your clothes and they don't smell like they used to smell. They carry that very scent from that individual that you had interaction that you rub shoulders with in that elevator. That is just like unity in the world. You see, unity is not something that you normally see. It's counter our, na our nature as, as people. But when people do see it, they look up and they pay attention. Oftentimes that's gonna stick with them. And may the world be overwhelmed by the scent of unity on you and on me. May we carry that, that, that sweet smell everywhere we go. And as people walk away from us, may they reflect on what they saw and, and, and be caused to ask, why, why would those individuals over there at CBC, why were they so unified? Why were they so tight together? And may that not just stop there, may their senses be awakened as they remember what they saw and may they seek Jesus for themselves. Unity 
is worth fighting for, for the sake of the world. As we all have witnessed, race relations can be ugly. However, there's something beautiful when you see brothers living together in unity. As we continue to have these discussions about race relations and the challenges thereof, about justice, about, about love and how to fight for unity, we thought this morning that we would do things a little bit different and we would try to cover some of these things and we are just getting started. We will have continued conversations throughout the year. But this morning we wanted to, to, to address it in storytelling and in conversation. Tom last week started that process of storytelling uh, and Bob Deffenball is gonna continue that this week by talking about those in his life who have impacted him and instructed him as it relates to the area of race and the relationships that ensued uh, from those interactions. And after that, we're gonna allow you to eavesdrop on a conversation that we had on Thursday night on a Zoom meeting with some, some black leaders, some black pastors, uh, and some CBC members. On the call, you will see Reverend Terrence um, Ford. Uh, you'll see Reuben Connor Jr., yeah, the, the son of the individual that Tom was talking about last week, and his wife, Tammy. You'll see Bob Deffenball, Al Angel, Patrick Warner, which is my father, uh, Adria, and myself. And our hope is that as you, as you, you listen into the conversation that you had, you'll see one that we don't have all the answers, but you also will see a group of people digging in for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of responding in a way or trying to figure out what God requires of us for the sake of the unity that gives praise and is a testimony to a world that is watching. So we pray that you'll be edified by the by the testimony and the conversation that you'll that you'll listen to, and that you would be encouraged to have those kind of conversations around your own table and discussing how we can be more unified and how we can understand each other better for the sake of God's gospel and God's glory. I pray that God is glorified today. When I think about CBC and race relationships, the first name that comes to my mind is Jerry Johnson. Jerry was a, a great friend. Many of us who were old timers would remember him. Uh, he's been gone now for nearly 20 years. But Jerry was a guy who uh, in a very quiet way, uh, deeply impacted not only me, but many others at Community Bible Chapel. I was a young man fresh from seminary. I, uh, I had come from a small town in Washington State where there was not one African-American uh, living there, and frankly, almost no Hispanics either. And so I came as, as a babe in the woods, and Jerry many times uh, helped me see things from, from his point of view and, and without any anger, uh, was just a great friend and in many ways a mentor to me and to others. And I'm sure that there would be many who would agree with that. The second person that comes to my mind is uh, Dr. Reuben S. Connor. He was a man we've already talked about last week uh, about his past and how God had saved him and changed him from a radical, angry young man to a, a, a gentle a preacher of the gospel. One of the stories I remember about Reuben uh, took place after a board meeting at Black Evangelistic Enterprise that he and a couple of other men founded to, uh, to, to be, uh, start churches in urban areas where Bible teaching churches were not really uh, there in the black community at that time. 
when the meeting was over, uh, Ruben went out to get in his car and a young woman who was a prostitute approached him. And uh, Ruben rolled down his window and he said to her, what do you need? And she said, I need $25. Ruben said to her, if I give you $25, will you wait for me to go get my wife and come back and tell you about Jesus? That, that was the kind of man that Dr. Connor was. I remember after 25 years of being on the board of Black Evangelistic Enterprise, two board meetings stick out in, in my mind. One was a, a board meeting in Oak Cliff at a restaurant. And after the meeting had come to a close in terms of the official business uh, of the board, we just sat and we talked and we shared. We sang a hymn that would not put the Mormon Tabernacle Choir to shame. Uh, but we just had fellowship together. And I remember Dr. Connor saying to us, I'm so grateful for Black Evangelistic Enterprise. If it weren't for this organization, I would never have come to know you men as I have come to know you and to, and to delight in your fellowship. There was another meeting uh, some years later when we had a, a building on South Boulevard. And at the end of the meeting, a, a couple of the guys on the board had to go for other commitments. But for some reason, the rest of us just didn't get up out of our chairs. And we sat and, and we fellowshiped uh, around the Lord in a way that was almost amazing. And I left that meeting thinking, here was something totally unstructured, totally unplanned. And yet here were uh, believers of different races sharing their lives and loving one another in a way that you seldom see. Uh, and it was one of the blessings uh, for me, and I know for some of my brothers as well, uh, for being a part of Black Evangelistic Enterprise. I can, uh, I can remember another uh, story that, that sticks in my mind. I was traveling with Dr. Connor and Willie Peterson and we were going uh, to Birmingham, Alabama and Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, when we were in Jackson, Mississippi, it was one of the most dramatic examples of being on the other side of the tracks that I've ever seen. Uh, we were in one part of, of the city and all was well. We crossed literally over the railroad tracks and I thought these kids were out fishing in what, what appeared to be a lake or a pond and the reality was it was kids playing around a sewer. And uh, as we were driving in town, uh, I was with uh, all the other guys were African-Americans and I was the only white guy in the crowd in the, in the car. And, and a white uh, deputy sheriff pulls up alongside of us and gives us the evil eye. And in that moment in time, I honestly forgot that I was white. And I looked at that man and I felt what my brothers felt. And it was a kind of hostility and troublemaking uh, situation, which I would just as soon have not been in. But it was, it was one of those things that helped me understand and appreciate what some of my brothers uh, were going through. In Birmingham, I was to speak at a banquet and we, I was staying, there were several of us, and I happened to be appointed to stay with a lovely uh, older widow lady named Minnie Dial and her son, Ron. And as I was uh, headed for the, uh, the restaurant to speak at this banquet, uh, Minnie Dial and I were walking together and I gave her my arm. One of my brothers <laughs> decided to drop back a block <laughs> and I wasn't quite sure what was going on, but as we proceeded down the street, uh, a, a young white guy uh, rolled by in his car, and I didn't get the precise words that he spoke, but I got the essence of what he was saying, and, and I began to understand why my friend decided to be a little further away from us than he was. Well, that's, uh, that's 
the way I think some of the things that I remember, but one of the other incidents that wasn't related to black evangelistic enterprise was when I was with prison fellowship speaking in a, in a, uh, a, a really serious prison in the state of Texas. And we, uh, we were in the midst of a weekend seminar and we had a little break and one of the in inmates said to me, I heard that one of the volunteers that's here uh, for this seminar actually did time in this prison. And I'd like to hear his testimony. And I said, well, let me check. So I asked uh, the volunteers and lo and behold, there was a, a young white fellow who indeed had been an inmate in that maximum security prison. And he told his story, I'll never forget it as long as I live. He, he starts to tell about how he had been arrested. He stole a very a fancy tricked out motorcycle. And so it wasn't a minor uh, offense. He had been found guilty, but he had not yet been sentenced. Somebody said to him, you really need to read the Bible. And he said, so I got me one. He hesitated a minute and then he said, well, to be honest, I stole me one. And he was living in a house with a motorcycle gang as he started to read through the gospels. And he was reading about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He began to weep so loud that he went into the bathroom and turned on the shower so the others wouldn't hear him. He knew that Texas prisons were, were not a friendly place to be. And when he finally reached this maximum security prison, he was very, very fearful of what was yet to happen. And he says that he went through that gate and he came in and he stopped. And he looked back at one of the uh, African-American young men, Billy. And he said, Billy, come up here. And he said, I was frightened to death. And Billy took me in and discipled me. And they both wept on each other's shoulder. I'll never forget that. Something you'd, you'd never do in a prison. And these two men manifested this great love that they had for one another because of their love for Jesus Christ. Those are the kind of things that I think we need to keep in mind as we think about uh, this racial uh, dilemma. Certainly in the Church of Jesus Christ, there ought to be that kind of love and fellowship and unity. And when other people see that, that ought to be well worth their remembering and seeking for themselves. We're, we're, we're talking about the, the George Floyd situation that happened weeks ago and uh, the sadness and the anger that has come out of that. Uh, and if you were like me, you probably had a lot of conversations uh, about this. There's probably been a lot of people has asked you questions. Uh, I know the online people have uh, contacted me. I've had conversations all over the place. Um, and it has put the church in a place where we are to look inward and see what God requires of us. And so I want to have a, a conversation uh, about that. Uh, in particular, what shall we do from here? How is the church supposed to respond? Outside of the coronavirus, outside of uh, uh, pent-up energy, there seems on this one to be a rage uh, and a, an explosion that happens. How do, how do we make sense or, or explain that? I think at this point, the question is not about all that caused the buildup as much as it is, how do we not allow that to build up again? Mm -hmm. How do we have these realistic outlets for movement, for change, for making a difference beyond just being seen and heard? Um, because when the camera, when the next big issue comes on, if there's another COVID-19 flare up, or we get closer to the presidential election, the spotlight is going to change off of this. Mm -hmm. Now the question is, does everyone go back to, to normal and start building up that frustration level again until something it boils over again? Or do we take this moment to say there, there are realistic uh, avenues in order to foster change and movement and make a difference 
and uh, and really galvanize people in those directions, both of, of whatever ethnicity, uh, yeah. to to move them to, to realistic outlooks. And you know, Martin Luther King was primarily for a peaceful protest, mm -hmm. but he talked about you know don't be surprised if the peaceful protest doesn't have any kind of um, progress that it goes to a riot. That is, that's a natural cause of a people who are not heard to go to that point. I didn't feel like I was as enraged as other African-Americans that I saw around me. And I started looking back at my history. My dad's from the Caribbean. Um, and he doesn't, he hasn't expressed the history, the generations of history of uh, injustice in the United States that I think a lot, a lot of my brothers who have grown up and have a long generation after generation of hearing stories again and again of injustice happening. And then when you see it again at your age, in our time, it's like, again? It happened again? And so in its context, in the context of a history of generation of a generation, you could understand, not that you, you say that that's right, but you could understand frustration. Uh, and frustration boiling over to the point of explosion. I think it's important that we understand people in their context. I blew, grew up in the middle of, and aware, very aware of, de facto segregation in the North where I grew up, and segregation de jour or by law in the South. And the hypocrisy that I grew up with in the North astounded me because too many of the, my contemporaries would point, point their fingers of blame down South. And yet what I saw up North equal, if not excelled, excelled, if that's the right word for it, over what was going on in the South. So, we've come a long way from then. And, and when we came to Dallas in 1972, we had the forced desegregation movement. So my kids <coughs> were going to schools, black schools, which was fine. And the, 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 what was not fine were the black kids coming to schools up in North Dallas. And their parents couldn't come to PTA meetings and other meetings with teachers and things like that. So guess what? They were left out. They were discriminated against in that way. So we keep on doing throughout my lifetime. We pass laws. We make major adjustments. We do fine tuning, but still where did it get us? It got us to where we were last week. And so I throw up my hands and say, where are we? I believe that. Um, um, there's a massive of um, individuals who live in this environment where they see ill treatment, mistreatment because of either the community or uh, the involvement of their parents, you know, whether it's illegal or, or, or whatever. And uh, they see this in their neighborhoods on a, on a daily basis. And and the and there's nothing that they can do about it, other than uh, uh, you know say stop 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 because you can't get involved and and, and 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 I don't think it's happened too many times where an incident where uh, police officers were uh, handling or, or trying to bring order in a situation and uh, someone interfered and so I, I believe that. That, that the experience have been so consistent, like Brother Terrence was saying, and if you have uh, water in a pot with a lid on it, and you don't take the lid off, then eventually the water is gonna really blow over, ball over, and so uh, just take the, take the lid off. The question is, how do we take the lid? off of this balling situation that we find ourselves in today. What I can say is that what happened has caused this to happen. Mm -hmm. I've never met you guys, and I know Terrence, but I've never met you guys, and just to 
be in this type of meeting trying to come up with a solution okay. is uh, something different. So if what happened last week wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't have never met you guys. <laughs> and we wouldn't be trying to come up with something or, or pray or whatever the situation is, trying to figure out what are believers supposed to be doing at this time right now. So even this was uh, uh, a divine appointment. Yes. Mm -hmm. right. Amen. Sounds like you simply said conversation is happening. Yes. There you go. And I think that's a good point to, to emphasize is what are we as Christians called on to do rather than what do we expect the world to do? Yes. I, I frankly see this as a part of a far bigger issue, and that is authority. When I think back of the New Testament times, the disciples were, were fixed on who's the greatest, who's going to sit at your right hand and your left, who's going who's to be in charge. Uh, and, and you see that with the religious leaders. They abuse their authority. When you look around today in the churches, we see many churches that have collapsed, have imploded because of pastors who, who uh, were usurping authority. And it occurred to me that when, when Paul says to fathers, don't exasperate your children, I think, I think part of that is it's the abuse of authority. Mm -hmm. and, and it seems to me all around our country, in our churches, everywhere, people have authority in order to cause people to serve them. And, and the scriptures are crystal clear. We're to use our authority to serve others. And Jesus said that as clearly as anybody can say it. Son of man did not come to, to be served. He came to serve. Yes. Give his life as a ransom. I, yes. I think when the church and, and leaders in the church and husbands, families, when they see their authority as the platform for service, for sacrificial service, I don't think you're going to see the frustration that, that you see uh, often uh, around the world. And, and it seems to me the police issue, when I was in prison ministry and, and, and had to think about what would you do at a riot, I decided I'd go behind the bars. I would not be outside with the guards. <laughs> just a, well, what are you going to do as an inmate? Call the police? Yeah. If somebody abuses you, you have no authority at all. You're weak. And, 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 and this, the system has a way of perpetuating power uh, that comes up in the political realm all over the place. So long and the short of it is, I think Christians need to serve. And when they have, whether it's economic power or, or influential power or leadership power, that needs to be the platform for service rather than getting people to follow our lead. And for me, I think the, the key point really is... Um, what do we do as Christ's followers? Yes. That is really the key thing. What would, what would Christ have us do? Whatever our experiences are, the response and the attitudes and so on should be, should be the same, regardless of our experiences. Because above all, we all belong to, we all belong to the Lord. We are all brothers and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that puts us into you know a, a unique, a unique fellowship and um, unique oneness and, and and really a bond that is beyond anything that the world knows anything about. As Christians, in the past we had not um, faced these issues squarely and dealt with them honestly right. and without hypocrisy. Yeah. Um, we have kind of talked past each other and we have um, not really entered into the experiences of, of, of each other. And what we see in scripture is that we should bear each other's burdens we should try to, we should, I think the very first thing that we should do is to try to understand the perspective of each other. The black folk, for example, talk about um, 
the conversation that you'd have with your son about how he should behave. And I think that a white, a, a white father would also have a conversation about his son as to how his son should behave around blacks. There you go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, beautiful. We, 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 we don't we, we don't we, we don't have empathy with each other and look and, and look at things from each other's point of view. We all have our own individual stories, and our individual stories are so different and so unique. And the fact is, we all need to hear stories. This can't be just one moment that passes on and gets forgotten, out of sight, out of mind. We have to keep it going. So I hope this becomes the beginning of what becomes a bigger movement. Hey, Terrence, once you speak to that, you, you mentioned in our conversation about micro macro. Yes. Um, once you speak a little bit to that. Sure. I, I've kind of um, developed a, a paradigm to, to view this and to view movements in. And um, as I shared, the, and I mentioned earlier, there's massive movements, which is visible. Um, of everybody or a lot of people, multitude of people gather around massive movements. And the purpose of, I think, of a massive movement is for the visibility. I, I, do you see me? Do you hear me? Uh, kind of thing. But there has to be micro movements. And what we call micro movements, I, I, I equate that to um, if you have a slab that's concrete, the way you really get it broken down to rubble is not through a couple of hits of a sledgehammer. You need a jackhammer, those micro movements, uh, even if it's only in your corner, to break it up into rubble and even to ash. And I think that's where uh, the individual relationship building comes into play. And after we got through talking, I started really thinking about that. And, and then it, it dawned on me uh, the irony that Back in the 60s, it was about not being able to sit at certain places and eat. You couldn't sit at the counters. There was, you know, you couldn't eat in the same restaurant. You couldn't share the same space of breaking bread. Yeah. And within that civil rights movement, we got, we equalized that where everyone can eat in the same place, but we never got to the point where we ate together. We never got to the point where we broke bread together. And so I think now we're at a point where it's not about sharing the same space, but we're in our own, uh, at our own tables, but intermingling those tables to have those conversations about experience, to have those conversations about uh, where I'm coming from. And, and what I shared too about micro movements is that's an individual work to do. Uh, you don't you don't get the massive movement. You don't get the big visibility. It's a personal effort. But the beauty of that is I don't have to bear the weight of my whole race in that moment. Mm -hmm. I can't speak for every African American in a micro movement moment uh, because they didn't have my experiences. They do not have my intersectionality, my different identities uh, that makes me who I am. And so my story is unique to me. And, and it, it, it is through that lens that I see things. Now, granted, there's some commonalities among African-Americans, but there's commonalities again, uh, among Christians too. Mm -hmm. um, there's commonalities among males, but mm -hmm. uh, uh, an African-American Christian male experience that is not me is gonna be different from me. And so I think that's where we have to get to that level of, of, of micro-integration, and that's where the movement happens, because I'm not trying to change your mind, as, as Al said, I just want you to understand where I'm coming from and how I got to this place. Um, and then I talked about methodical movements, which that's where you get into systemic changes and law changes and things like that, and I think that's more institutional kind of importance. But let me just point this out. Um, while we're talking about Christian response, um, I just want to turn the clock back not too long ago to the Botham John situation. And when his brother got up in that courtroom 
room and hugged and forgave Amber Geiger. The outrage that I heard from Christians mm -hmm. about him forgiving her mm -hmm. or making that big deal out of that moment, yeah. to me, was more telling than all of the racial tension. Because it shows that our Christianity does not trump our ethnicity in most cases. Right. That's good. And yes, that right. creates the greater tension. It's, it, it's not mm -hmm. a sin, skin issue, it's a sin issue that plays itself out as a skin issue. And, and until we come to that reality as a church, and I, and I honestly believe that was a God moment. Mm -hmm. That just, just like this is a God moment. I, I, want, I believe that God said, I can get everybody's attention in a moment. Because that young man, I do believe his heart was true, but I think he was used by God mm -hmm. to demonstrate the power of our faith when it is authentic and when it is uh, consistent mm -hmm. that we can change. Granted, Amber Guy, whatever her case may be, the fact that he forgave her probably, in my opinion, changed the trajectory of her future. Right. She may spend the rest of her life in jail or feel the weight of this, but because he forgave her, now she can seek and know the, the grace of God to forgive us for the things that we've done. And, and so as Christians, that micro-movement begins it. with a holy, the Holy Spirit superintending us in those moments. Because if we come in with our own agenda and our own perspective, even our own story, clouds and blocks the work of God. And we cannot do it on our own power. Love my enemy, bless those that curse me. That is not a natural reaction. That is a supernatural yeah, environment. Yeah. All right? And that's my sermon for tonight. I'm, I'm done. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, think, I think because of the rage, someone had mentioned rage. Because of the rage, that uh, believers, black believers have, then they miss that moment. I do. They I miss agree. That because of the rage. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it struck me that we all have idols. Mm -hmm. There are things that we hold up and we consider to be more important than anything else. Yeah. It could even be something. Um, you know, as valid as the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution is not inspired by God. It is, it, it, it is not something by which, it's not really the marching orders for Christians. But there are many other things that are, that are good and valid that we consider to be idols. And we take our, our, the experiences that we have and the um, the, the, the goals that we have and make them idols. And uh, very often they interfere with what God wants to do. Yep. I remember an experience that I had in New York. Um, as I said, I came from the West Indies. And um, in 1961, I was uh, completing a, a college course in accounting in Trinidad, one of the islands in Trinidad. And um, the culture in Trinidad at that time, of course, you know, the, the whites, there were, there were a few of them, they were at the top of the social structure. But the vast majority, middle class, were, were you know, American blacks. And at the very bottom of the social structure at that time, were East Indians who had been imported, you know, maybe a century or so ago to work in the rice fields. Mm -hmm. And at that time, many of the Indians were, were trying to get their children educated and Indians were now beginning to get government jobs and jobs in the banks and so on. You know who were mostly opposed to that? The black folk were mostly opposed to that. Mm -hmm. And very often you heard the restraint, why don't, these, why don't these Indians stay in the rice fields where they belong? <laughs> and um, there was a very high crime rate at the time in Trinidad. 
the East Indian, the Indians were blamed for the um, for the crime in Trinidad. They're all cutthroats, they would say. And it occurred to me, and, and, and at the time I was aware of what was going on in the United States with um, you know discrimination and the marches and the and the sit-ins and so on. It occurred to me that this discrimination and racism is a sin question. And it and it manifests itself in all of us. And I and, and they remember looking into my own heart as well and recognizing that there was some there was discrimination in my heart as well. Mm. And uh, somehow at that time, as a youngster, I, you know, I, I really came to grips with that. And when I moved to New York, um, I was able to see the discrimination from a different point of view. Um, you know, I'd apply when, when we were getting married, I would um, see an advertisement for an apartment in, um, in the paper. I'd call, oh yes, come on down. And as soon as I'd go, they'd say, oh, we just rented that apartment. <laughs> wow. And, um, you know, I, I could, um, I remember really accepting that without rage because I said, that is just simple nature manifesting itself. And at one time, someone told me to my face, oh, we don't rent to blacks in this neighborhood. And really because of, because of what the Lord taught me, I was able to, um, to work through and to navigate all these things really without, without anger. But the, I remember one thing that really <laughs> made my temperature rise, if you will. Um, in all of the, the, the riots and so on, there was a, there was a, um, a talk show, David Suskind talk show. And he had um, some black activists. He had some pastors. You know, he had a liberal pastor, and he had a a, conser a conservative pastor. And you know, and and um, immediately I um, felt an affinity with the with the conservative pastor because you know he believed the same thing that I did as far as the gospel was concerned. But I was thoroughly disappointed with, with, with his approach and his answers. And um, his answers were so inane that, that um, I think David Suska, or one of the other moder people on the panel said, um, well, obviously Christianity is not the answer to that, to that mm -hmm. problem. But it is, it was then, it is today. Yeah. And it is up, to, and and it and it will only manifest itself as the answer if we Christians respond biblically. Mm -hmm. If we respond biblically in a way uh, that, uh, that that the Lord Jesus Christ would have us respond to each other. I'm speaking about blacks and whites and yeah. and, and and everyone across all of the spectrums. Man, uh, had a epiphany moment. So I said earlier, my experience, I was struggling with rage. Like, I, why am I not in rage? Perhaps it wasn't, it was because my father had, um, the Lord had dealt with him on that. And his modeling to me had its impact without me even knowing. And God's grace flowed through my dad down to me without me knowing. I want to read a passage of Romans and just kind of what sticks out to you as far as how this particular passage applies to us where we're at. What stood out to you as far as our call and what shall we do from here? Yeah, look at the joyful actions in all of those words, you know, some of them we saw enthusiastic, eagerness, endure, persist, pursue, be devoted, bless, rejoice, contribute, 
there's there's so much momentum in that looking looking beyond the circumstance beyond the situation even beyond the person into the greater hope uh, which is in christ and i love how that pushes us so far beyond earthly things and into the eternal realm and that's the hope that we can cling to that's what we can grab onto. i like the way the, the verse 19 the, the concluding portion of um love is the bottom line and i love the way it concluded we can just remember that we don't have to blow up we don't have to get angry when when wrong is do us we have to know that god's word does not go void his word do what it says it's gonna do yes. and in verse 19 uh this verse right here can help us if we can grasp the concept here do not take revenge my dear friend but he said leave some room in there because god's wrath is going for them but it is written it is more i mean it's mine to to advance and so uh i like to to meditate on on god being the the, the pay the payback um he fights our battles yeah i i, I been meditating on this for the last two weeks it has this passage has been the passage jesus himself entrusted himself to the one who would judge righteously who, who am i to think that i can't do the same mm. and so there's so much in this passage i think of weep with those who weep Man, if we would stop with the with the argument and how we're triggered and, and we see people's pain and we would just weep with them. That's mm. it. Don't say a word, wow. just weep with them. Wow. I see that you are you're hurting, that this is impacting you. Mm. I'm sorry. Go ahead, go ahead, Terrence. You no, I, I I'm I'm totally in agreement with you. Uh, but I I just want to point out. Verse one, though, I think it is where it sets it off. Yes, you're right. You have to present yourself yes. mm -hmm. as a living, holy sacrifice to God. Mm -hmm. um, I know one commentator says that the problem with the living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that's part of the problem is God is taking yeah. too long for our, our, our timing. And so we'll get up and we'll take care of it ourselves. And that's where, now that you're up, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the redoing yeah. of your mind. Verse yes. two hits you there. Mm -hmm. and, yep. and I think that transition and that transformation rather of our mindset, where we take on the mind of Christ mm -hmm. so that he can do his work through us. In our yep. weakness, his strength is shown. So mm -hmm. I think we can't get to, we cannot, in our own power have that momentum of 9 through 21 have that i mean uh, don't overcome uh don't, don't don't overcome evil by evil but overcome evil with good that is not a human ability <laughs> but it is when it when it, it is a god ability yeah. through human beings yes. when you're on that altar and yeah. so uh, i think we cannot miss that in all of this, because until we surrender to God now, and and, and He understands the the Hi. burden of the patience and and surrenderance and submission and worship. That's what worship is. Uh, in, in essence, the surrender to God, uh, being vulnerable to His His usage, but He provides that vengeance, as it was said, mm -hmm. when we let Him. If, he, if you want to fight, then I'll sit back and, you know, there you go. As long as you're fighting, <laughs> I'll let you fight and get yep. beat up. <laughs> Isn't that verse number two, what, what I was struggling with? Being conformed to the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Isn't that what I was struggling with? Like that, yeah. that wanting to be, to, to be squeezed, what they say, don't let the Man. world squeeze you into its mold. Like, I'm supposed to be this because the world is telling me I'm supposed to be. Right. Yeah. I do feel like it's appropriate for us to, to end this with, with praise to our God for what he is going to do, what he has done. Um, 
And I wonder if uh, if I could have uh, Brother Terrence, so you're in, you're in the middle of my screen, so you get picked. Uh, why don't you go ahead and close us out in prayer? Okay. Lord, we do thank you for being God. Um, no matter what's happening on earth, no matter how we feel, no matter what outrage exists, no matter what kind of racism exists, you're still God. Uh, nothing we do can alter your character or your love or your, or your wisdom and your power. And so we thank you and we humbly submit to that. Uh, we say that and that's our heart's desire. We know that our flesh does not always allow us that does not always submit to the spirit. So Lord, we pray that you'll continue to condition our, our hearts as well as our nature, uh, that we might honor your name and reputation on earth. Lord, we thank you for this, this moment, this gathering. Uh, as Tammy said, that all of this has brought us together uh, for this moment and for this conversation. And thank you for Robert for, for uh, being sensitive to your leading and pulling this together in such a way. But Lord, we don't want to leave this moment uh, just as a moment. We pray that it becomes momentum and that it moves us to action, not conform to the world's way of doing it, but through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and his work in us, your work in us, that we might bring you glory uh, through our deeds and actions. And it might uh, be spread to other believers that our faith will trump everything else. Our faith will inform our vision and our action. So Lord, we just praise you. Lord, thank you uh, that this world is not our home, that this is not the end of the matter, and that you still have control of all. And so now we pray that your glory shines forth and that we might bask in it and point others to you. We love you. We bless you. We honor your name. In yeah. Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you so much, brothers, sisters, for uh, right. having this conversation. This will not be the end. I will hang out with y'all again. Y'all ain't getting <laughs> off that easily. Um, okay. Thank you, uh, Al and Bob, for, for setting this up, making the connections. Dad, thank you for traveling for Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all have a good night.